Turn with me to 1 Kings chapter 5. 1 Kings chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. Now Hiram, king of Tyre, sent his servants to Solomon when he heard that they had anointed him king in the place of his father, for Hiram always loved David. And Solomon sent word to Hiram, You know that David my father could not build a house for the name of the Lord his God because of the warfare with which his enemies surrounded him until the Lord put them under the soles of his feet. But now the Lord my God has given me rest on every side. There's neither adversary nor misfortune. And so I intend to build a house for the name of the Lord my God. As the Lord said to David my father, your son, whom I will set on your throne in your place, shall build the house for my name. Now therefore, command that cedars of Lebanon be cut for me. And my servants will join your servants, and I will pay you for your servants such wages as you set. For you know that there is no one among us who knows how to cut timber like the Sidonians. As soon as as Hiram heard the words of Solomon, he rejoiced greatly and said, Blessed be the Lord this day who has given to David a wise son to be over his great people. And Hiram sent to Solomon saying, I've heard the message that you've sent to me. And I'm ready to do all that you desire in the matter of cedar and cypress timber. My servants shall bring it down to the sea from Lebanon, and I will make it into rafts to go by the sea to the place you direct. And I will have them broken up there, and you shall receive it. And you shall meet my wishes by providing food for my household. And so Hiram supplied Solomon with all the timber of cedar and cypress that he desired, while Solomon gave Hiram 20,000 cores of wheat as far or as food for his household and 20,000 cores of beaten oil. And Solomon gave this to Hiram year by year. And the Lord gave Solomon wisdom as he promised him. And there was peace between Hiram and Solomon. And the two of them made a treaty. And King Solomon drafted forced labor out of all Israel. And the draft numbered 30,000 men. He sent them to Lebanon, 10,000 a month in shifts. They would be a month in Lebanon and two months at home. And Adoniram was in charge of the draft. Solomon also had 70,000 burden bearers and 80,000 stone cutters in the hill country. Besides Solomon's 3,300 chief officers who were over the work, who had charge of the people who carried on the work. And at the king's command... They quarried out great, costly stones in order to lay the foundation of the house with dressed stones. So Solomon's builders and Hiram's builders and the men of Gebal did the cutting and prepared timber and the stone to build the house. Let's pray and ask for God's help. Father in heaven, we give you thanks for your kindness. We give you thanks, O Lord, for being a God who is sovereign over all creation and all the affairs of this world. We pray even now, Lord, that you would be sovereign over this affair, the preaching of your word, and that you would have your spirit uh, to encourage our hearts. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. The temperature on the planet of Mars today, high temperature actually, uh, 
negative 14 degrees Fahrenheit. The temperature on Mars averages about negative 81 degrees Fahrenheit uh, throughout the year. Can dip as low as negative 220 degrees Fahrenheit and get as high as 70 degrees Fahrenheit. But today, the high is negative 14 degrees Fahrenheit. Now, is that a true statement? As far as we know, the best we can tell, yeah, it is a true statement. It probably only got as hot as, as cold, as warm, I'm not sure. Negative 14 degrees Fahrenheit on the planet Mars today. True statement as far as we know. But does that statement really have anything to do with your life this Tuesday at 3 o'clock p.m.? Does it have any bearing on your life? Does the fact that the high on Mars today is negative 14 degrees Fahrenheit have anything to do with how you are going to live your life this week? Well, probably doesn't. Uh, it probably has no real connection with what you're going to be doing Tuesday at 3 o'clock p.m. By way of contrast, uh, this is not how the promises of God function. Uh, this is not how the promises of God interact with our lives. Take God's promise to Joshua that we just read in Joshua 1 where, where God says that, that just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. Now, again, let's do the same test. Was that a true statement? Yes, it was a true statement. If, we were, if Joshua were standing here today, he would be able to say, yes, God was with me the whole time. He, he didn't leave my side, not even for a day. Uh, he would attest that God's promise was absolutely true. Now what about the second question? Joshua, did, did that have any bearing on what you did with your life? Did that have any bearing on what you were doing Tuesday at 3 o'clock? Did that have any bearing on how you shepherded and led the people of Israel? He would say, yes, absolutely. It had everything to do with how I shepherded the people of Israel. It had everything with, uh, to do with how uh, I went into the, I led the people of Israel into the land of Canaan to fight the Canaanites. God's promise to Joshua meant something to him. It, it applied to his life because it was in touch with the reality in which he was living, with the situation in which he was living, and with the situations in which he would be living. And that's, that's what exactly what we see, what we encounter in our text this afternoon in 1 Kings 5 uh, this evening, that the promises of God are in touch with the reality in which we live. The promises of God are in touch with the reality in which we live. When we open First Kings 5, or really when we open the book of Kings, there's already an existing tension. And that existing tension is, uh, is that David could not build the house of the Lord. For all the, the, the history of the people of Israel, since they left Egypt and since they were camping in tents, God himself too has dwelt in a tent, in the tabernacle. Uh, God dwelt in a tent in the midst of his people, as we learned this morning, all through the wilderness wanderings and even through Canaan as they fought the Canaanites and so on and so forth. And God finally gave his people a land, a place in which they could dwell, a place in which they could move out of their tents and into permanent homes, but yet... God had no permanent place to live. God had no permanent place among his people. 
And so David recognizes this fact in 2 Samuel, and he, and, he, and he wants to build a house for the Lord. He wants to build the temple, but God says, no. David, you're not going to be the one to build me a house. You're not going to be the one to build the temple. Your son is going to do that. And not only is your son going to build me a temple, but he's also going to you're also going to have a son on the throne that comes after you. And so now we have the second part of that promise come true. God has established Solomon on the throne as king of Israel. As we learned in chapter 4, Solomon had dominion over all the region west of the Euphrates from Tishpa to Gaza, over all the kings west of the Euphrates, and he had peace on all sides around him. And Judah and Israel lived in safety from Dan to Beersheba, every man under his vine and and under his fig tree all the days of Solomon. Thus far, God has established Solomon on his throne and given peace uh, to the people of Israel. But again, what of the temple? Well, in verse 5, we're reminded of that particular promise from back in 2 Samuel 7 that, that God would not only enthrone uh, David's son as king of Israel, but the very fact that God would also be the one to build the temple of the Lord. And, and this promise, this particular promise that, 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 that Solomon through God or God through Solomon would build God a temple is not separated from the reality in which the people of God live. God's promise was in touch with the reality of life in the people of Israel at this point in time. And God's promise is about to actually bring into effect the temple that He promised would build. The promise is about to establish the conditions in which Solomon and the people of Israel can actually do Uh, what God promised that he would do. God's the primary cause, his people being the secondary cause. But there's a a string of verbs that that show us in particular that God's promise and his actions himself actually provide the conditions in which his people can march forward, can move forward. In verses 1 through 12, God's provision, God's giving and action on his part has direct effect on on the people's lives. In other words, because God himself has promised, the rest of the pieces of the puzzle are are finally fitting together in reality, in space and time. Let's look at Solomon's letter to Hiram. In in verse 3, Solomon recounts how the Lord would uh, establish the enemies under the soles of his feet. In verse 4, the Lord has done that. He's given rest on every side, neither adversary nor misfortune, which leads to a context, which leads to uh, a time in which Solomon could get to work. And so Solomon does just that. He, he asks uh, Hiram, would you provide the cedar? Would you provide the cypress for the house of the Lord? And, Siram, uh, and, and Hiram agrees in verses 7 through 11. And in verses 10, we have Hiram giving the labor and Hiram giving the cedar and Hiram giving the cypress and Solomon giving the labor and Solomon giving the wheat and Solomon giving the oil. God's promise to David way back in 2 Samuel chapter 7 was the foundation for God's giving his people rest on all their sides, which was the foundation 
for Solomon beginning the work on the temple, on the people of Israel, and the foundation for Hiram giving the cedar and the Cyrus, uh, Cyprus, and the foundation for Solomon giving the wheat and the oil. That, that, that word give, intentional, it's used and translated in one way or another eight times in those first 12 verses. So what do we, what do, big picture, what do we see here in the first 12 verses of chapter 5? Well, it's something kind of obvious, but it's, but it's no less important. It's the fact that, that God's promises are in touch with the reality in which his people live, right? God's promises are in touch with the reality in which the people live. God's promises interact with the world around us. God's promises were in touch with Solomon. They were in touch with Hiram. They were in touch with cedar and cypress and wheat and oil and ultimately to provide a temple for the people of God and for God himself who would be worshipped and his name, verse 3, would finally be proclaimed and his name would be on the house and it would be lifted up and it would be glorified and it would be proclaimed. But God's promises are in touch with the reality in which the people of Israel live. And God's promises are no less in touch with the realities in which we live. God's promises speak to, they speak to our suffering. They speak to our pain. They speak to our sin. They speak to our shame. They speak to, uh, they are in touch with the world in which we live. Our Individual worlds, our lives, they're in touch in the details of every passing moment, every passing day. God's promises are, are not like the high temperature on Mars on Sunday, June 12th. They're not without bearing on our lives. God's promises touch every area of our life, and they bear on every area of our lives. For example... To reiterate one that we heard of this morning, God knew uh, that his people would feel lonely in this world. And so therefore he promised them that he would, never, he would never leave them nor forsake him. God knew that his people would struggle with sins that would nag them over and over and over. Those sins that, that they just can't seem to shake. And so he promised that in Christ, sin has do, no dominion over them. Romans six fourteen. God knew that his people would promise with, with shame. or God knew that his people would struggle with, with shame and, and self-condemnation. And so what does he promise in Romans 8.1? That there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. God knew that his people would struggle with pain and suffering and that they would become discouraged and they would become worn out. And so what does he promise in 2 Corinthians 1.3? That he's the God of mercies, and the Father, the Father of all mercies, and the God of all comfort. God's promises are in touch with the realities in which you and I live. God's promises are in touch with the world in which we live in, in every tangible and real way. And they're not, just, they're not just in touch with the world in which we live, but, but in addition, they also call us 
to action. God's promises call for action, and God often fulfills His promises through promise-founded action. God's promises in verses 3 to 4 are the foundation on which Solomon chooses to act. Beginning in verse 3, you know, Solomon talking to Hiram, you know that David, my father, could not build a house for the name of the Lord his God because of the warfare with which his enemies surrounded him until the Lord put them under the soles of his feet. So Solomon knew that there would be no building a temple until God provided peace for the people of Israel, until their enemies were under the soles of his feet. Verse 4, but now the Lord my God has given me rest on every side. So, so the condition has been met and there is neither adversary nor misfortune. And so, and so I intend to build a house for the name of the Lord my God. As the Lord said to David, my father, your son, whom I will set on your throne and your place shall build the house for my name. Solomon recognizes what's going on. Solomon recognizes what's happening. And so in verse 6, he actually puts things into motion. Now, therefore, Hiram, command that cedars of Lebanon be cut for me and my servants will join your servants and I will pay you for your servants uh, such wages as you set for you know that there is no one among a no one among us who knows how to cut timber like the Sidonians. Solomon realizes the fact, the conditions for the promise uh, to, be, to, to, to come to fruition, those conditions have been met. And so what does he do? How does he act? Well, well he, number one, in verses 7 through 11, or actually 6 through 11, he secures the physical resources that are required to build the temple. Right? We need... Uh, cedar, we need cypress. Those are two things that we have to have in order to begin building the temple. And not only that, but he secures a labor force. Now this one's a bit more tricky. We read verse 13 where it says, King Solomon drafted forced labor out of all Israel and the draft numbered 30,000 men. So now here the second time in the book of Kings so far we've had mention of forced labor, uh, one in chapter 4, verse 6, and one here. So uh, what, do we, what do we do with that? What, what do we make of it? Well, here in particular, I think it actually means nothing more than Solomon putting the people of Israel uh, to work and not, at least yet, all-out slavery. Uh, like we see uh, before the people of Israel in Egypt, before the Exodus. Uh, here, I think Solomon is simply just putting the people at work. I, I don't think that it's all-out slavery. Number one, or there's really three reasons for this. Uh, number one, it's because the time was ripe. Right? The, the people of God needed to build the temple during peacetime. Solomon recognizes that it's peacetime. And so he uses his kingship, his authority as king to put the people of God into motion to begin constructing the temple. Uh, number two, the verb, the words, forced labor are associated here in at least this particular passage here in verse five with Israelites. We can learn from Second Chronicles chapter two that the 30,000 of forced labor like we see here in verse 13 and sent to Lebanon in verse 14 are actually Israelites, and according to chapter 9, verse 22, God never enslaves, is, or I'm sorry, Solomon never enslaves Israelites. Chapter 9, verse 22, the author of the book says, But of the people of Israel, 
Solomon made no slaves. Now, at least up to that point. So number one, Solomon recognized it was, the time was right to get the building of the temple. And so he, he used his authority to put the people into motion. Reason number two, I think, is because these people are Israelites. And the chapter 9, verse 22 says that he didn't put the people of Israel into slavery. Verse, uh, reason number three is that if it were real slavery, it's unlikely that it would be done in shift work. Verse 14 rings with a bit of grace. And he sent them to Lebanon 10,000 a month in shifts, and they would be a month in Lebanon and two months at home. So they worked a month, they were off two months. It doesn't seem like if it were all-out slavery that, that that would be the case. And so what do we make of verse 13? Well, I think Solomon's simply just putting people into motion. Solomon is getting the work started. Verses 6 to 11, he's secured the cedar, the cypress, he's secured the resources and in verses, uh, verses 13 and following, he's securing the labor force to go behind it. The labor force to actually get things done. Uh, the 70,000 were made to be burden bearers. Uh, basically, they just hauled stones. Uh, 80,000 were made to be stone cutters. And then managers over all of those people. But what's, who, who's actually running the show? Who's actually putting these things into motion. Well, it's Solomon in verse 2. It's Solomon who reaches out to Hiram for help. In verse 11, it's Solomon who actually makes sure that Hiram is paid for his cedar in Cyprus and for the labor. In verse 13, it's Solomon who's called the people of Israel to action. In verse 17, at the king's command, they queried out great costly stones. Solomon in chapter 5, is taking action, which actually serves as a good foil, a good, a, a good um, contrast to, again, his father in the latter part of his life. But Solomon is taking action. He, he, he realizes that God's promise, it's time for it to come into fruition. And so he takes action. Which is the second point I wanted to make. God's promises themselves call for action. And what I mean is this, is that, that because God's promises are true, objectively true, because they are true, and because they're in touch with the reality in which I live, and we can act on them and we can shape our lives according to them. We can, in short, apply them to our lives. Because God's promises are true and because they are offered with a view towards the reality in which I live, I can apply them to my life. I can take action upon them in my life. Because, again, what, 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 what gives me the option? What gives me the privilege of applying God's promises to my life? Well, again, it, it all goes back to Christ. 2 Corinthians says that all the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ. And if I am in Christ because I trust in Christ, then the promises of God not only belong to Christ, they belong to me. And so therefore, because I am in Christ and the promises of God belong to me, I can then apply them to the individual situations, the, the circumstances that I find myself in day to day and week to week. 
God's promises are, are not just true statements. They're not just true statements like the temperature, high temperature on Mars today. But they're true statements that have bearing on how I live my life and what I do with what happens in my life. God's promises are not abstract and only true out in the ether, but, but they have real effect in my life on Tuesday at 3 o'clock p.m. They're in touch with the reality in which I live, and God's promises speak to the reality in which I live, and they're meant to be applied to the reality in which I live. Again, God's promises speak to our loneliness. If at Tuesday at 3 o'clock I find myself lonely, what do I do? Apply the promises of God. God will never leave me nor forsake me. If at Tuesday at 3 o'clock I, uh, I, I find myself battling again with that same sin that I've been struggling with for five years, what do I do? I apply the promises of God to the particular situation in which I live. Again, it's Romans 16 or Romans 6, 14, uh, that sin shall have no dominion over you. When God says that, he actually, he actually means it because I'm in Christ. Romans 8, 11, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So if Tuesday at 3, I find myself struggling with that same sin. What do I do? Apply the promises of God. Or if Tuesday at 3, I, I find myself struggling with shame, self-condemnation. What do I do? I pr- apply Romans 8.1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. In Christ, we are uncondemnable. Or if Tuesday at 3, I, found myself, I find myself in an absolutely terrible situation in which I have no idea where to turn and what to do. If my life has just fallen apart, what do I do? Apply the promises of God. 2 Corinthians 1.3 God is the, uh, the Father of mercy and the God of all comfort. That actually means something for me on Tuesday at 3. Because I'm in Christ, God comforts me when I'm terribly upset by the changes and whatever circumstances happen in my life. Because God is the Father of, all, Father of mercies and God of all comfort, that particular promise is meant to comfort me in the midst of whatever meltdown I find myself in. And so the promises of God are actually in touch with real life. They're meant to to change, not necessarily the circumstances that come my way, but how I respond to those particular circumstances that come my way. God himself, he's going to handle the circumstances, whatever I face. He's he's sovereign, he's, he's going to control that. I can't control that. But in light of God's promises, I can control how I respond, how I react, what action I take to God's, according to God's promises 
whenever the life seems to be falling apart. And so there again, I want to challenge us. It's one thing to to believe that God's promises are true. It's another thing to actually use them and apply them to our individual situations. And so what does that mean for us tonight? What is, what is these two points? That, uh, that God's promises are in touch with the reality in which I live and God's promises are meant to be applied to the reality in which I live. What are those two things? What do they mean for me tonight? How do they, how do they shape my Christian life in general? How do they shape uh, how I walk out of this building tonight? Well, number one, I think it, it would be a good practice for all of us to be the good kind of broken record. We've all been the bad kind of broken record before, right? Life is terrible. The country's in a mess. The world is getting worse. And life is hard. Those things are true. But what if we turned our our broken record into into one that, that played something that was pleasurable to hear? It's the promises of God. And not only to play that broken record for myself, yes, absolutely, I'm asking you to do that. That's what I've spent 25 minutes doing, is asking you to apply the promises of God to your life. But also for our children, our parents, our friends, our wives, and our husbands, be the kind of broken record that, that applies the promises of God, not only to our lives, but to theirs as well. Second overarching application. Don't either actively or passively forget the promises of God. We all know what passive forgetting is. That's where you just, you find yourself in the situation and you just forget how the word of God at all applies to where you are. Right? We, know, we know that one. Uh, we know that, that yes, don't, don't passively forget Read the Word of God. Read the promises of God. Remember the promises of God so that you can apply them. But also don't actively forget them. Right? Don't actively say, oh, they don't apply to me here and so I'm going to forget them. Right? They may apply for my sister or my brother or they may apply to my friend or my child, but they don't actually apply to me. And so uh, what use is it? I'm not going to try to make that application. And thirdly, I've mentioned a, a lot of different situations in which we might find ourselves. I've mentioned loneliness and I've mentioned uh, struggling with besetting sin. I've mentioned shame and self-condemnation. I've mentioned suffering. It's the third kind of pastoral application. If you find your, yourself tonight, like my, none of those situations really line up with where I'm at. I'm dealing with X or why, and he didn't really answer or apply any promises to those particular situations, I would ask you to just please come have a conversation with myself, Pastor Michael, one of your ruling elders. Let's talk about where you are. Let's talk about the, the situation in which you find yourself. There is a promise that applies. There is a promise that's in touch with that reality. And there's a promise that changes how you respond to that reality. Let's pray.
My Father in heaven, we thank you, O Lord, for the, our Lord Christ, who shepherds us through his word, who has bought us the right to be recipients of your promises. And so, Father, we pray that you would, you would help us. We pray that you would remind us. Uh, we pray that you would use the people around us to remind us of these things. We pray that we would also be good reminders ourselves. Thank you, O oh Lord, for, for taking care of us and not offering abstract truth in your word, but offering promises that fit um, the individual struggles that we face on a daily basis. Pray now, Lord, that you would shepherd your people. In Christ's name, amen.